Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Thanks, Christmas Choir and Adrienne and the group today. As always, we love having you. Love having the Christmas Choir up here to lead us in worship. It's fantastic. Uh, this week I celebrated my 33rd birthday, which is why I have the beard. Grace gave me a beard for my birthday, which is pretty cool. And I'm 33 now, so obviously, clearly, I started thinking about retirement this week. Um, I've been putting money away, but thinking about what is retirement really going to look like? Uh, what's, what's that good life in the future going to be? Because Grace and I need to be putting things away now. We need to store up, save up now so that we can live the good life then. So we thought, well, probably we'll be sitting in our bathtubs next to each other. Um, <laughs> sitting out and staring over the Riviera and drinking Italian wine and eating French cheese. And, and then, you know, that's the picture. That's the good life, right? And then we'll be spoiling the grandkids and do a remodel and then downsize eventually and all of that. So excited about the good life in the future. We'll save up now. Good life in the future. There's other pictures of the good life, obviously. Maybe the good life is experiences now and... We'll have to pay later, but we can live the good life now. So cash in now, pay later. Eleanor Roosevelt put it this way, The purpose of life is to live it, to taste experience to the utmost, to reach out eagerly and without fear for newer and richer experience. The idea, live for today, better to flame out than fade away, if you've heard that. So store up experiences now and have to pay for them later. So we can store up money now, and live the good life later, or we can store up experiences now and pay for them later. A third option, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle talks about, instead of storing up money or storing up experiences, he talks about storing up virtues. Happiness is the result of storing up virtues. Happiness is the good life, as he defines it, but it's the result of a person cultivating the virtues over a whole lifetime. Becoming what we are meant to be and how we were created. Become the person that God created you to be, is the idea. Become truthful, caring, wise, intelligent, and just. Obviously, we're missing some key things there. He's, Aristotle isn't aware of the cross and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. But he gets something right, doesn't he? The good life is to become who we were created to be. 
So instead of storing up money to live the good life in the future or storing up experiences and have to pay for them later, the idea here is the good life is becoming who God created us to be. And as Christians, we can say we are becoming the kinds of people that God has made, called, and enabled us to be by the power of the Spirit. The good life is living a Jesus kind of life, becoming Jesus kind of people. And that takes work and cultivation and especially, again, especially the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in us. But we become like Jesus over time as the Spirit of God works new life, real life, life that's really life, as He works that in us. When we build up a virtuous life by God's power, we can cash in on His life now. We can experience the kingdom life all the time, now and in the future. We can live the good life now as he lives his life through us. So again, the good life is not out there in the future once we planned and saved and worked enough that we can finally retire. The good life is not seeking out best experiences and living for now. The good life is becoming the kinds of people that God is making us into. A gospel-centered people living out the reality that God is with us, living out his life in us. In our passage today, Paul tells Timothy how to respond to rich people in his congregation. And he gives us a picture of the good life, I think, of becoming who we were always meant to be, of what it means to live out God's purposes here and now as we hope for the future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have created us with purpose, that you have sent your Son to earth to give us the hope of life with you, and that by your Spirit, you are making us into the kinds of people that can spend eternity with you. Thank you for eternal life, for real life, the good life. And thank you that eternal life is available to us now. For those who are rich, we pray that you would speak to us and take our eyes off of riches and put our hopes directly on you. I pray that you would speak to all of us this morning and that you would be glorified in and through our lives. May we put our hope in you, and would you make us more and more like Jesus. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're finishing up our study of 1 Timothy, and we're in the middle of Advent. We've looked this fall at 1 Timothy, what it means to be a gospel-centered church. A community of sinners, which is what we are, being made holy by the power of God, by praying submitting to each other and to God, worshiping God in an orderly way, honoring widows, submitting to bosses, led by elders who lead us in right doctrine and holy living, and learning the scriptures. In chapter 6, this last chapter, we've looked at Paul's comments on money and explored how the love of money is a root of all evils. And then last week, Jackson, my dad, gave us a charge on fighting the good fight of faith. This week... Paul finishes the book by giving a few final instructions for the rich and then a last charge to Timothy. I'm going to focus on Paul's instructions for the rich, but we will make some comments about those last two verses at the end. So last week, I find it very interesting. Last week, the, verse, or the passage glorifies God and ends with this great amen, which would be just a brilliant ending to this book, wouldn't it? That's the place where... In my thinking, this book should have ended. Paul, however, 
thought that it was really important that he give these final instructions for the rich. So, like we know, the last word is often the most important thing, or one of the key things that, that the author wants to say. So here we have to assume that Paul had really important things to say to the rich, and so I think we have to take this passage really seriously. And I think one of the things he's asking the rich is what kind of life are you putting your hopes in? Or what is the good life? And he tells us right at the top, right? Verse 17. He tells Timothy, Command the rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hopes in riches. A couple things here. First, Paul refers to this present world and I think this, this line and this whole passage is very eschatological. If you know that term, you know it means dealing with the ultimate things or the last time, the end times, that kind of thing. He's very eschatological. He's comparing this present age with something to come. Right? This present age, you're rich in this present age. But there's something coming. We have a glorious future age still to come. This is not the end. This is not everything that there is. There's something more. Second, Paul talks about the rich. Let me just clarify what the rich are for you. This Greek word is very, um, very significant. It means people with money. <laughs> now, if you are a person who has food, shelter, clothing and transportation, you are among the top 15% of the rich in this world. Which means most of us here are the rich. We are who Paul is talking to, more than likely. I don't tell you that to make you feel guilty or something, but just to say this passage applies to almost all of us in this room. I should give a hat tip to the growth group guide this week for pointing that out. Top 15%. So thanks, Ted, and the growth group guy. If we don't feel rich, that's probably because we've taken on our culture's ideas about what makes someone rich. We compare ourselves with others. Or we think, oh, I always need something more. But that's, that's our culture speaking. That's not God's words to us. Third, Paul commands the rich not to put their hopes in riches. Wealth, Paul says, is very uncertain. It's not stable. You can't count on riches or wealth. Wealth now, for us, does not mean we will be wealthy in the future. And one version I hear of putting our hopes in riches is this idea of, well, I just want to save up for my kids. I want my kids to have a better life than I've had. That's not a Christian idea. I just want to point that out to you. That's, again, our culture is thinking that we always need to be getting better. We always need more than what we have. Better life for our kids is not a Christian idea. Uh, Wendell Berry, who's one of our great sages for tradition and place and the things that are worth holding on to, uh, talks about this in his book, Hannah Coulter. I'll just read a section of this for you. This is Hannah talking about her life and she's talking to her husband about what it meant to send her kids off to college so that they might have a better chance at life than she had. 
So this is Hannah Coulter talking. The big idea of education from first to last is the idea of a better place. Not a better place where you are because you want it to be better and have been to school and learned to make this place better, but a better place somewhere else. In order to move up, you've got to move on. I didn't see this at first. And for a while after I knew it, I pretended I didn't want it to be true. But it was true. After they were all gone, I was mourning over them to Nathan. Nathan's her husband. I said, I just wanted them to have a better chance than I had. Nathan said, don't complain about the chance that you had. In the same way, he used to tell the boys, don't cuss the weather. Sometimes you can say dreadful things without knowing it. Nathan understood this better than I did. Wendell Berry is saying that we want better things for our kids than we had, often because we don't appreciate the beauty and goodness of the things that we had. We are discontent. God has given us more than we could ever want or need. Why can't we learn to be content? And John Chrysostom, a 4th century preacher who is known for speaking to the rich and powerful, his comment about this is, it's not care for his children that makes a man covetous, but a disease of his soul. So if wealth were certain and stable, that still wouldn't be a reason to trust, to put our hopes in riches, in wealth. But we know that wealth is not stable or certain. I was hired in September 2008. The day I was hired, Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy, setting off one of the worst periods in stock market history. Many, many people, and some in this room, lost their life savings, many lost jobs, businesses. The economy took, went through the flush, whatever the <laughs> metaphors disappeared on me here. So if I have put my hopes in riches, then woe is me. I am doomed because riches come and go. Money is a tool for me to use for God's kingdom, not a way to reach the good life or something on which I can put my hopes. If I put my hopes in money or wealth, then God may you take them away from me so that I will hope only in you. And if you have put your hopes in money or in wealth, may God take them away so that your only hope will be in Him. Paul says, don't put your hopes in money. Put your hopes on God who gives us everything richly for our enjoyment. We see the U.S. economy runs on money, right? And so there's this finite amount and so we have to accumulate, take as much as we can to make sure that we're safe. God's economy runs on grace and it's infinite. It never runs out. There is always enough. He has given us creation where we can see Him and all kinds of beauty around us. He has given us the earth to work so that we can have food and clothing and shelter. He has given us families so that we can experience love. He has given us health and physical abilities. He gives us the sun every day and sleep most nights. And He's given us children to love. He's given us the seasons for beauty and for rhythms of life. He's given us the people of God to worship together and to learn to love Him together. He's given us His Son as the most precious of His gifts 
to save us from sin and death, to reveal the Father to us, to be our high priest and our only hope. He has given us His Spirit to make us into a new community and to show us our sin and to grow us into new creation. He has given us so many gifts that are more valuable than anything that money or wealth can give us. We can hope in Him because He gives and He gives and He gives and He never stops giving. He is a giving kind of God, we might say. And if stuff runs out, guess what? He can make more. And if we destroy our relationship with Him, He gives us His Son as a gift. And Jesus will give everything, even His life, to redeem and restore that broken relationship. And when injustice and violence and cruelty have destroyed this earth, He will give a new heavens and a new earth and Jesus as a new king to rule over all of it. This God is a giving kind of God. He gives all the way to death and beyond. And so we can enjoy His gifts because we don't have to worry about accumulating. See, money trains us to be stingy people, to be small people, to take for ourselves. Grace, God's grace, trains us to be givers, to give ourselves away. He is a giving kind of God and His people are called to be a giving kind of people. So if we become free from money, maybe we'd be more ready to receive His grace. In giving ourselves away, maybe we might just find life. Does that mean we should sell all we have and give our money to the poor? Maybe. Not all of us are called to that. It's not required by Paul here in this passage. But I don't want to go over that too quickly. Jesus does require it of the rich young ruler. He does say these words, sell all you have, give the money to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. If the love of money is destroying your soul, then better to cast off all riches than for your whole being to be thrown into hell. And we do have great examples of men and women of faith who gave away everything. St. Francis, for example, was a rich young man. He gave away everything he had and became a wonderful preacher of the gospel. And because he had no money, he was able to go into places and talk to people that never would have heard the gospel otherwise. Mother Teresa and others are examples of this intentional poverty, choosing poverty. And Rich Mullins, if you know that name, singer-songwriter, evangelical world of the 90s, he was one who chose, influenced by St. Francis, who chose intentional poverty. He made a vow of poverty and gave away everything that he had. And because of that, he was free to serve in ways not possible if he had money. So if that is God's call on your life, do not disregard that call. Our only hope is in God. We have no hope in riches. There is no hope in money. Some of us, again, are called to intentional poverty, but not all of us. So if we're not called to that, we have to find ways to fight against putting our hopes in riches. Thankfully, Paul gives us some ideas for how to do that. In verse 18, Paul goes on to say that the rich should do good, be rich 
in good works. Be generous and ready to share. In verse 17, he had said the rich shouldn't be arrogant or conceited. And here he says the rich gives us some things that the rich can do. Putting these verses together, I think Paul is saying to the rich, don't get caught up in thinking yourself so big that you don't need God or others, that you'll be fine on your own. He's saying, God has given us riches to be used for the sake of others. God has made some people rich so that they can bless those who have less. Two words here I want to uh, focus on a little bit. The words translated generous and willing to share aren't used anywhere else in scriptures. So we don't know that we know what they mean. But generous seems to mean something like someone who is ready to give, who has the stuff ready, has the money ready, whatever they're supposed to be giving. They have it ready and they're just looking for opportunities. God, where do you have me to give this stuff? Where do you have, who do you have for me to give this to? I think we can practice, we can cultivate a readiness to share what is yours for the sake of others. We can practice giving by having the bag of groceries in your car ready to give to the guy with the street sign at the, at the uh, grocery store parking lot. We can teach our children how to give at Christmas rather than just receive. So, for example, Grace and I next year, we're committed to not buying gifts for each other. Instead, we're going to take the money that we would have spent on gifts and we're going to take that money and give it to somebody. Uh, we're not sure who that somebody is yet, but somebody. And when we talked about this at our growth group uh, this week, one of the people in our group sent out an email afterwards and said, Hey, I've got some stuff. I wonder if we had a yard sale. Maybe if we all pooled our resources and had a yard sale, and then we could have that money set aside in a ready-to-give fund. I thought that was a great idea. Um, have money set aside that's for giving, for that purpose of giving. So I challenge you to come up with some way to think about what does it mean for me to be ready to share? God has given me so much. How can I be ready? To give. The second word, willing to share, is related to the term koinonia. You may have heard that term. Fellowship or participation. It seems to me mean something like making others sharers in our stuff and community oriented. So Paul is saying, I think, the rich are to think about the community above themselves and invite the community to share in what is theirs. So it makes me think of the Acts community, early in Acts, Acts chapters 2 to 6, of this community where they had everything in common. There were some rich and some poor, and everybody held everything in common, and they all shared everything that they had. That's the picture, I think, that Paul is giving here. Be like that early church community. Be sharers of everything. So rich, don't be arrogant, but invite community to join with you in enjoying God's gifts. What's mine is not mine, it's yours. Mikasa sukasa, right? And there are some of you I know that are brilliant at this. I know I can walk into your house, use your stuff, you'll give me a cup of tea and a pastry, and I'll walk away not feeling guilty, uh, like I need to pay you back somehow. 
So I commend you for that. If that's your attitude, God bless you and continue doing that. Others of us need to find ways to practice this attitude. Maybe we can invite those people who are good at this to be teachers to us. Maybe we practice hospitality, invite people into our homes more than would be comfortable for us normally. Maybe invite people who don't feel comfortable to us. It's one thing for us to share with other rich people, right? It's something else for us to share with people who are, make us uncomfortable. Maybe another, another idea, maybe over Christmas this year, give away something that has been valuable to you. Let, let someone else participate in its blessings. If you've seen or read Les Miserables, then you'll remember the bishop who gives Jean Valjean, who's a convict, silverware and two silver candlesticks. These are the only valuable things in the bishop's house. The only valuable things left in the bishop's house. The first hundred or so pages of this enormous book are all about how this bishop became the kind of man who could give away two silver candlesticks to a person who had just stolen from him. Through the trials of his life, this bishop learns to be a giver and to do good works. This bishop becomes a giving kind of man, a godly kind of man. It's an extraordinary lesson for us, so if you ever get a chance to read this, please do, and notice the first hundred pages. I want to read the first interactions between Jean Valjean, the convict who's been kicked out of every other place in town, and the bishop. Madame Maglore, said the bishop, set the places as near the fire as you can. Then turning toward his guest, Jean Valjean the convict, he added, the night wind is raw in the Alps. You must be cold, monsieur. My French is terrible, pardon me. Every time he said this word, monsieur, with his gently solemn and heartily hospitable voice, the man's face lit up. Monsieur, to a convict, is like a glass of water to a man dying of thirst at sea. Ignominy thirsts for respect. This lamp, said the bishop, gives very poor light. Madame Maglore understood him and, going to his bedroom, took the two silver candlesticks off the mantel, lit the candles, and placed them on the table. Monsieur Curé, said the man, you are truly good. You don't despise me. You take me into your house. You light your candles for me, and I haven't hidden from you where I come from and how miserable I am. The bishop, who was sitting beside him, touched his hand gently and said, You didn't have to tell me who you are. This is not my house. It is Christ's. It does not ask any guest his name, but whether he has an affliction. You are suffering. You are hungry and thirsty. You are welcome. And don't thank me. Don't tell me that I am taking you into my house. This is the home of no man except the one who needs a refuge. I tell you, a traveler, you are more at home here than I. Whatever is here is yours. Why would I have to know your name? Besides, before you told me, I knew it. The man opened his eyes in surprise. Really? You knew my name? Yes, answered the bishop. Your name is my brother. Amen, right? He had cultivated over a lifetime this willingness to give. And so when he had an opportunity, it was easy for him to be that kind of person who gave. 
He didn't need to know Jean Valjean's name or what he was like. He just knew that the man was in need. That was it. The bishop's house and his possessions don't belong to him. Everything belongs to Christ. He doesn't need to hold anything tightly because it all belongs to God, who will use it for his purposes. He is ready to share. He is oriented towards others. He is a great and challenging example to me. Let's become that kind of people. Let's be ready to give and to share. Become giving, godly kinds of people whose giving has kingdom impact. God is richly supplying us with all that we need and with blessings for our enjoyment since He is our hope and supplies all that we could ever ask for and more. We who are rich can live generous lives. Again, I challenge you to think this Christmas and for 2015 about ways that you can become and be a ready giver and a sharer of goods. So for those of you in growth groups, maybe this is something you can discuss together at your ugly sweater parties this week. White elephant, ugly sweater, secret Santa parties. I find the language of verse 19 extremely interesting. It could have been used to make a retirement fund advertisement. Store up for yourself a firm foundation for the future so that you can take hold of life that's really life. Diversify your portfolio so that your wealth will grow so that you have enough for your future. You can live the good life then if you invest in the right ways now. It takes work to be prepared to live the good life in retirement. But again, what is the good life? And what should I be working at now so that I can live the good life? Paul suggests to us that there is life and then there is kingdom kind of life. There is life and then there's life that's really life, to use his words. He wants us to grab hold and hold tight to real life. Not to the shadows of life that we get when we try to hold on to our wealth. Wealth is only for now and it's only a tool. As Dad said a few weeks ago, you won't ever see a hearse hauling a U-Haul, right? Riches can never give us life. Not here and now and certainly not in eternity. God is our hope, and He gives to us richly. Instead of hoping in riches, Paul says, be rich in good works. My hearse won't be hauling a U-Haul of goods, but I do think if we had eyes to see, then when some of our dear saints die, we might see them carrying a lifetime of good works as it turns to a crown of gold in eternity. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that good works leads to salvation. Our only salvation is Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection. So you know that's not what I'm saying. But some will enter eternity having lived lives of good works. They've lived this out for uh, their whole lifetimes. And some of us will enter as through fire as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Our works burned up and we will experience the loss of knowing that our lives were essentially meaningless for the kingdom. So we can have a kingdom impact by our good works now or we can enter eternity knowing loss and knowing meaninglessness. If we are in Jesus, we are called to take on His character. 
the character of Jesus, who had all divinity and did not regard riches and equality with God something to be grasped, to be held, but gave himself away, emptied himself, became a low-class, scandalous slave. And becoming a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, the shameful and horrifying death of a cross. He put all of his hopes on God. Therefore, our gracious, giving, creative God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of him, we have life. If we will submit to him as Lord, and if we live like him, we will have real life. Life that's really life, not the shadows of life. He calls us to be giving Jesus kinds of people. That is life that's really life. I just want to say, we will become the kinds of people that we are becoming. Our lives and our actions are shaping us to be a certain kind of people. If we're Jesus people, if his life is in us, living, it, living itself out through us, then we are becoming whoever we are, whether we're middle class servants at church, rich philanthropists, or poor welfare moms, we are becoming prepared for worship with the saints and the angels around the throne of God. The good life has already started if you're a Jesus person. We are becoming saints by the power of God's Spirit. For those giving, godly kinds of people, we are already taking hold of life that's really life. On the other hand, if we are money-loving, experience-loving, or if we love anything but Jesus, we might be middle-class servants at a church, or rich philanthropists, or poor welfare moms, but we are becoming monsters. We are being prepared for eternity in a lake of fire. If we are becoming those small, money-loving people, the good life can never start because it's always just out of reach. We will never experience the good life. That's what I mean when I say we will become the people that we are becoming. Either we're preparing ourselves for heaven or we're preparing ourselves for hell. I'm about to say something that will sound a bit like a certain big-tooth false teacher leading people astray, but you know that we mean different things, so here it is. You can live the good life now. You can live out life that's really life by giving yourself away for the sake of God's kingdom. And we who are rich have a special obligation because of God's blessings of wealth to us. God has given us these riches so that we might build up his kingdom. By leading a Jesus kind of life, full of generous giving, spirit-empowered good works, always ready to give, orienting ourselves and all that God has given us toward others, toward the community, we can live the good life now. We hope in a God who raised Jesus from the dead, who has promised us a future of life with him. And so we can give our lives away like Jesus did. That's what it means to be rich in a gospel-centered church. To give ourselves away just like Jesus. And again, that's what it means to hold on to life that's really life. Just a couple minutes wrapping up this letter. Verses 20 and 21 
wrap up the whole letter of 1 Timothy. And I think they really do a nice job of summarizing a lot of the things that Paul's been telling Timothy throughout this letter. Paul wants Timothy to guard the simple gospel by avoiding chatter and arguments and secret and false knowledge that's led people away from the faith. He says, hold on to the gospel. He's talked about the gospel and the dangers of false teachers throughout the letter. Hold on to the gospel, he says. Put your hope in the good news about Jesus. Allow the gospel to penetrate your soul, to seep into your bones, to strengthen you in your weakness, and to humble you in your strength. Let the gospel story speak its life into your whole life. Guard against the false gospels of wealth and status and retirement and just do it. Be ready to speak and live out this gospel every day and in every area of your life. We all need to speak and to hear the gospel all the time. So this is the gospel. We are sinners. And yet God has sent His only Son in the little baby, the form of a little baby, born in a manger. wasn't actually born in a manger. Laid in a manger. He sent His only Son to come, to die, to defeat sin and death, and to redeem us. God raised him from the dead and lifted him up to be the great king over all kings. And he is coming again to reign over everyone. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, the only Son of God, who was born from a virgin, whose birth was celebrated by angels, wise men, and shepherds, who is the crucified and risen Lamb, whose kingdom will not end. Hold on to this Jesus. As we await His birth this Advent, put your hope in Jesus the Son and in God His Father. We have no other hope. There is no hope in riches, only in the God who gives richly. There is no hope in holding on to things for ourselves. Instead, we give ourselves away for the sake of others, like our King Jesus did. There is no hope in storing up riches for your future. Instead, we can store up good works that will last into eternity. Submit to Jesus as Lord. He is our only hope. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for sending Jesus to us. Thank you for sending him as a baby. That we might know that you are a giving kind of God. I pray this morning and this year and this Christmas season that you would make us more and more into giving kinds of people who put our only hopes in you. We love you and we praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.